I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Ah, the sounds of summer. Also, I'm up in my bedroom again because there's flies in my basement, so I can't be at the uh, podcasting quote-unquote studio that I have. So I decided, you know, it'd be fun. It's warm out. My kids have been outside, you know, playing, doing whatever. Uh, had the windows open all day. It was like 75 degrees, and it felt beautiful out. And then as I was getting ready to record up in my bedroom, my window was open, and I could hear, uh, you know, birds, late-night birds tweeting, and I could hear, uh, I don't know, drunk neighbors, which you can hear right now. That's kind of the reason why I wanted to record this. I wanted to show you uh, the beautiful of su- the beauty of summer. Yeah, the crickets, late evening birds, and uh, and the low buzz of a highway that's nearby. That's just constantly creating a white noise you hear at the office when they're trying to keep you from overhearing conversations between cubicles. And also my drunk neighbors. With a, one of them's got a high-pitched laugh, like a witch or a, someone possessed by a thousand-year-old demon. And I thought, oh, well, what if I just had that playing in the background during this episode? But, yeah, it's just, oh, there they are. It's just annoying. And I don't know if I want to keep that. Well, anyways, uh, that was my theme. That was a cute little thing. I was trying to do like a Miet Bedtime Story podcast, which is a, a podcast from 10 years ago that I used to love listening to. A woman, I want to say from Scotland, who would read you stories with their window open. You'd hear all the traffic outside and stuff. And oh, it was just enchanting. Well, I'm ditching this. Let's move on to the story. Well, let's learn about the author, H. Beam Piper. Henry Beam Piper, born March 23rd, 1904, and died November 6th, 1964, was an American science fiction author. He wrote many short stories and several novels. He is best known for his extensive Tarot-Human Future History series of uh, stories and a shorter series of Paratime Alternate History Tales. He uh, wrote under the name H. Beam Piper. Another source gives his name as Horace uh, Beam Piper and a different date of death. His gravestone says Henry Beam Piper, so that should settle that. Piper himself may have been the source of part of the confusion. He told people that H. stood for Horace, encouraging the assumption that he used the initial because he disliked his name. And a copy of, quote, Little Fuzzy, Given to Charles O. Piper, Beam's cousin and executor, he wrote, To Charles from Henry. So that seems weird, because the rest of the contents of this Wikipedia article are extensive, but that is the opening 
<laughs> part to learn about him and his career is just a huge paragraph about the problem with his name. So with that, let's dive into the story. Uh, Day of the Moron. It's a little in all italics paragraph here. It's natural uh, to trust the unproven word of the fellow who's, quote, on my side. But the emotional moron is on no one's side, not even his own. Once such an emotional moron at worst hurt a few, but with the mighty unleashed fortune of man's employees now, boy, I can't speak. Well, that didn't There were still, in 1968, a few people who were afraid of the nuclear power plant, oldsters, in whom the term eh, atomic energy produced semantic reactions associated with Hiroshima. Those who saw in the towering stream column above it a tempting target for enemy, which still meant Soviet bombers and guided missiles. Some of the Central Intelligence and FBI people who realized how futile even the most elaborate security measures were against a resourceful and suicidally determined saboteur, and a minority of engineers and nuclear physicists who remained unpersuaded that accidental blow-ups at nuclear uh, reaction plants were impossible. Scott Melroy was among these last. He knew, as a matter of fact, that there have been several nasty, meticulously unpublicized near-catastrophes at the Long Island Nuclear Reaction Plant, all involving the new Dornberg-Giardo breeder reactors, and that there have been considerable, carefully hushed, top-level acrimony before the Melroy Engineering Corporation had been given the contract to install the fully cybernetic control system intended to prevent the reoccurrence of such incidents, that had been three months ago. Melroy and his people had uh, moved in been assigned sections of a couple of machine shops, set up an assembly shop and a set of uh, plyboard uh, partitioned offices and vacant warehouses just outside the reactor area and tried to start work, only to turn in the almost interminable procedural disputes and jurisdictional wranglings of the sort, which he privately labeled uh, Bureau Bunk. It's only now that he was ready to begin work on the reactors. I sat at his desk in the inner three successfully smaller offices on the second floor of the converted warehouse, checking over a symbiotic logic analysis of a relay system and, at the same time, uh, sharpening a pencil. I was knife-paring off tiny feathery shavings of wood. He was tall, ah, squarely built, man of indeterminate age, with thinning, sandy hair, hmm, a long Gaelic upper lip, uh, and a wide, half-humorous, half-weary mouth. He wore an open-neck shirt, uh, and an old and shabby leather jacket, uh, to the left shoulder of which a few clinging flecks of paint showed where some military emblem had been long, long ago. While his fingers worked with a jackknife, and his eyes traveled over the page of closely written symbols, his mind was reviewing the eight different ways in which one of the efficient but treacherous dornberg Giardo reactors would be allowed to reach critical mass. And he was wondering if there might not be some unsuspected ninth way. Uh-huh. That was a possibility which always lurked in the back of his mind, and lately it had been giving him surrealistic nightmares. Mr. Melroy, uh, the box on the desk in front of him said suddenly in a feminine voice, uh, Mr. Melroy, I'm not going to do a feminine voice, Dr. Reeves is here. Melroy picked up the handphone. Handphone? Thumbing on the switch. Uh, Dr. Reeves, he repeated. 
The psychologist who's subbing for Dr. Von Heinrich, the box told him patiently. Ah, yes, show him in, Melroy said. Hey, right away, Mr. Melroy, the box replied. Replacing the handphone, handphone, Melroy wondered for a moment why there had been a hint of suppressed amusement in his secretary's voice. Then the door opened, and he stopped wondering. Dr. Reeves wasn't a him. Mm. She was a her. Very attractive looking her, too. Uh, dark hair and eyes. Rather oval features, clear, lightly tanned complexion. Uh, red lipstick put on with a micrometric exactitude that any engineer could appreciate. All right, this is all weird. She was tall, within four inches of his own six-foot mark. Uh, this is getting weird. And she wore a black tailored outfit, eh, perfectly plain, which had probably cost around $500. It would have looked severe uh, and mannish, uh, except for that the figure under it curved and bulged in just the right places and to just the right degree. Yeah, this is all disturbing. Melroy rose, laying down knife and pencil and taking his pipe out of his mouth. Uh, good afternoon, he greeted. Dr. Von Heydrich gave me quite a favorable account of you as far as it went. He might have included uh, a few more data and uh, made it more so. Uh, would you sit down? The woman laid her handbag on the desk and took the visitor's chair. Uh, impish mirth sparking in her eyes. Yeah, this is not good. Yeah, he probably admitted mentioning that the D is for darts. <laughs> She suggested. Suppose I've been an Englishman uh, with a name like Evelyn or Vivian. What? Melroy tried to visualize her as a male Englishman named Vivian. Yeah, gave up. And grinned at her. Uh, Let this be a lesson, he said. Inferences are to be drawn from objects, or descriptions of objects, never from verbal labels. Hey, do, you, do you initial your first name? Just to see how people react when they meet you. Yeah, well, no. Though it's an amusing and sometimes instructive byproduct, it started when I began uh, contributing uh, some of the professional journals. There's still a little what used to be called uh, male sex chauvinism among my colleagues, like there's not now, and some who would be favorably impressed with an article signed D. Warren Reeves might snort in contempt uh, at the same article signed Doris Reeves. Well, fortunately, Dr. Von Heindrich is one of those, Melroy said. How is that? Her doctor, by the way. Is it hair doctor? Hair doctor, by the way. And just what happened to him? Mrs. Cortekeeds uh, merely told me that he had been injured and was in the hospital in Pittsburgh. Yeah, the hair doctor got shot, Doris Reeves, I informed him. With a charge of BBs in a most indelicate portion of his anatomy, uh, he was out hunting the last day of a small game season and somebody mistook him for a turkey. Uh, Nothing really serious, uh, but his face uh, down in bed, cursing hideously in German, English, Russian, Italian, and French, mainly because he's missing deer hunting. I might have known it, Melroy said in disgust. Hey, you pick at his lame brain with a dangerous mechanism. I suppose he briefed you on what I want done here. Well, not too completely. I gather that you want me to give intelligence tests or uh, aptitude tests or something of the sort to some of your employees. I'm not really one of those so-called industrial anthropologists, she explained. Most of my work uh, for the past few years has been for public welfare organizations with subnormal persons. Oh, that's not cool. I told him that, and he said that he was uh, why he selected me. 
He said the other thing. Uh, he said, I used to think Melroy had an obsession about fools. Well, after stopping this load of shot, uh, I'm beginning to think it's a good subject to be obsessed about. Oh, Melroy nodded. Obsession. We'll probably do phobia, would be more exact. I'm afraid of fools. And the chance that I might have one working for me here affects me like having a, a, a cobra crawling around my bedroom in the dark. I want you to locate any who might be in a gang of new men I've had to hire so I can get rid of them. Just how do you define the term fool, uh, Mr. Melroy, she asked. Remember, it has no standard meaning. Republicans apply it to Democrats and vice versa. Well, I apply it to people who do things without considering possible consequences. People who pepper distinguished Austrian psychologists in the pants seat with turkey shot for a starter. Eh, or people who push buttons eh, to see what'll happen. Or turn valves and twiddle with dial knobs because they have nothing else to do with their hands. Or shoot insulators off power lines or to see if they can hit them. People who don't know it's loaded. People who think warning signs are purely ornamental. People who play practical jokes. People who, ah, I know what you mean. Just day before yesterday, I saw a woman toss a cocktail into an electric heater. She didn't want to drink it, and she thought it would just go up in steam. Ah, the results were slightly spectacular. Next time she won't do that, she'll probably throw a drink into a lead ladle. All right, if there's no one around. Well, on a statistical basis... I judge that I have three or four such dud rounds among this new gang I've hired. I want you to put the finger on them ah, so I can bounce them before they blow the whole plant up. Which could happen, uh, ooh, quite easily. That, Doris Reeves said, is not going to be as easy as it sounds. Ordinary intelligence testing won't be enough. Uh, the woman I was speaking of has an IQ well inside the meaning of normal intelligence. Uh, she, just, uh, she doesn't use it. Ah, uh, sure. Melroy got a thick folder of his desk and handed it across. Heinrich thought of that, too. He got this up for me. Uh, about five years ago, the intelligence test is based on the new French Surette test for mentally deficient criminals. Oh, boy. Then there's a memory test and test for judgment, discrimination, semantic reactions, temperamental and emotional makeup, and general mental attitude. She took the folder and leafed through it. Ah, yes, I see. I always like this Surratt test. Uh, his memory test is a honey. Ooh, one hen, two ducks, three squawking geese, uh, four copulent porpoises, uh, five limerick oysters, six pairs of Don Alfonso tweezers. I'd like to see some of these memory course boys trying to make visual images. Uh, six pairs of Don Alfonso tweezers. And I'm going to make a copy of this word association list. Ooh, it's really a semantic reaction test. Korbyowski would have loved it. And, of course, our old friend, the Rorschach inkblots. I've always harbored the impious suspicion that if you can prove almost anything you want to with that. But these questions, suggestions for personal interview are uh, really crafty. Did Heinrich uh, get them up himself? Oh, yes. We have stacks and stacks of printed forms on the written portion of the test and big cards to summarize each subject on. And we have a disc recorder to use the oral test. And that to be a pretty complete record of each test in case the office door opened. And a bulky man with a black mustache entered, beating the snow from his overcoat with a battered uh, pork pie hat and commenting blasphemously on the weather. He advanced into the room until he saw the woman in the chair beside the desk and then started to back out. 
Uh, come on, Sid, Melroy told him. Dr. Reeves, uh, this is our general foreman, said Keating. Sid, Dr. Reeves, the new dimwit detector. <laughs> Sid's in direct charge of personnel, he continued, so you two will be working together quite a bit. Glad to know you, Doctor, Keating said. Then turned to Melroy. Scott, you're really going through with this? Then, he asked. I'm afraid we'll have uh, trouble then. Yeah, look, Sid, Melroy said. We've been all over that. Once we start work on the reactors, you'll... Uh, Ned Purer and Joe Rickey and Steve Chalmers can't be everywhere at once. The cybernetic system will only do what it's been assembled to do. And if some quarter wit assembles one of these things wrong... He left the sentence dangling. Both men knew what he meant. Keating shook his head. This union's going to ball like a branded calf about it, he predicted. And if any of the dear sirs and brothers get washed out, that sentence didn't need to be completed either. Yeah, we have a right, Melroy said, to discharge any worker who is, quote, of unsound mind, deficient mentality, or emotional instability, unquote. Oh, I didn't do that. Normally I say the quotes, uh, but that one they actually uh, spelled out the words quote and unquote. So there you go. It says so right in our union contract in nice big print. Well, and they'll claim the tests are wrong. I can't see how they can do that, Doris Reese put in, faintly scandalized. Neither can I, and they probably won't either, Keating told her. Uh, but they'll go ahead and do it. Why, Scott, they're pulling the number one Dornberg Girardo tonight by 800. 0800. Ah, all right. Well, I'm not perfect. It'll be cool enough to work on. Uh, where we hold these tests? Here? We'll have to, unless we can get Dr. Reeves' security cleared. Melroy turned to her. Were you ever uh, security cleared? For any government agency? Oh, yes. I was with Armed Forces Medical Psychiatric Division in Indonesian 62 and 63, and I did some uh, uh, work with mental fatigue cases at Toronto Basin Research Establishment in 64. Melroy looked at her sharply. Keating whistled. If she could get into the Tonto Basin, uh, she can get in here, he declared. I should think so. I'll call Colonel Bradshaw, the security officer. That way we can test them right on the job, Keating was saying. Take them in relays. I'll talk to Ben about it. We'll work up some kind of schedule. He turned to Doris Reeves. You'll need a, a wrist Geiger and a, a dosimeter. It will furnish them, he told her. I hope that they don't try to make you carry a pistol, too. A pistol? For a moment, she must have thought he was using some technical jargon term, but then it dawned on her he wasn't. You mean... She cocked, she cocked her thumb and crooked her index finger. Yeah, ooh, a rod. Roscoe, ha <laughs> the equalizer. We all have to. He half-lifted one out of his side pocket. We're all United States Deputy Marshals. Wow, Marshals. I don't know what's happening to me right now. I think I'm having a stroke. They don't bother much with counter-espionage here. They won't fool when it comes to counter-espionage. But I'll get an order cut and posted. Be seeing you, Doctor. You think the Union will make trouble about these tests? She asked after the general foreman had gone out. Oh, they're sure to, Melroy replied. Here's the situation. I have about 50 of my own men from Pittsburgh here, but they don't work on the reactors because they don't belong to the Industrial Federation of Atomic Workers. And I can't just pay their 
initiation fees. I'm having a stroke and union dues and get union cards for them because admission to this union is on an annual quota basis. And this is uh, uh, December and the quota's full. So I have to use them outside the reactor area and fabrication and assembly work. And I have to hire through the uh, union. And that's handled on a membership seniority basis. And I have to take what's thrown at me. That's why I was careful to get that clause I was quoting to Sid written into my contract. Now, here's what's going to happen. Most of the men will take the test, yeah, without protest, but a few of them will raise the roof about it. Nothing burns a moron worse than having a, somebody question his fractional intelligence. The odds are that the ones that yell the loudest are about taking the test will be the ones who get scrubbed out. And when the test shows that they're deficient, eh, they won't believe it. A moron simply cannot conceive of his being anything less than perfectly intelligent. Any more than a lunatic could conceive of his being eh, less than perfectly sane. So they'll claim they're framing them for an excuse to fire them. And the union will have to back them up, right or wrong, at least on a local level. It goes without saying, in any dispute, the employer is always wrong and the worker is always right until proven otherwise. And that takes a lot of doing, believe me. Uh, well, if they're hired through the union on seniority basis, wouldn't it be likely to be experienced and competent workers? She asked. Experienced? Yes. That is, none of them have ever been caught doing anything downright calamitous. Yet, Melroy replied, the moron I'm afraid of can go on for years doing routine work under supervision and nothing will happen. Uh, then someday he does something on his own, a uh, lame brain initiative. And when he does, it's only at the whim of whatever gods. There, that'd be the result, isn't the wholesale catastrophe. Uh, the people like that are most serious threat facing our civilization today. Atomic war not accepted. Dr. Doris Reeves lifted a delicately penciled eyebrow over that. Melroy, pausing to relight his pipe, grinned at her. Yeah, you think that's the old obsession talking? He asked. Could be. But look at this plant here. It generates every kilowatt of current used between Trenton and Albany. The New York metropolitan area included, except for the, a few little storage battery or diesel generator systems, that couldn't handle one-tenth of one percent of the barest minimum load. It's been the only source of electric current here since 1962. When the last coal-burning power plant was dismantled, knock this plant out, ah, you'll darken every house and office and factory and street in the area. Ah, you'll immobilize the elevators. Think of what that would mean. Uh, in the lower and midtown Manhattan alone, and the subways, and the new endless belt conveyors that handle 80% of the city's freight traffic, and the railroads, there are a dozen steam or diesel locomotives left in the whole area, and the pump stations for water and gas and fuel oil, and 70% of the space heating is electric. Now, why, you can't imagine what it'd be like, it's too gigantic. Uh, but what could you imagine would be a nightmare? You know, it wasn't so long ago when every home lighted and heated itself and every little industry was a self-contained unit. What a fool could do to damage unless he inherited a throne or was placed in command of an army. And that didn't happen nearly as often as our leftist social historians would like us to think. 
Oh boy. But today, everything we depend upon is centralized and vulnerable to blundered damage. Even our food. Hey, remember that poisoned soft drink horror of Chicago in 1963? 3,000 hospitalized and 600 dead because one man's stupid mistake at a bottling plant. He shook himself slightly, as though to throw off some shadow that had fallen over him and looked at his watch. 1,600. How did you get here? Fly your own plane? No. I came by TWA from Pittsburgh. I have a room at the Midtown City Hotel on 47th Street. I have had my luggage set here from the airport and came out on Long Island Subway. Yeah, fine. I have a room in Midtown City myself, though I sleep here about half the time. He nodded toward the door and his left. Suppose we go in and have dinner together. Uh, this cafeteria here is a horrible place. It's run by a dietitian instead of a chef. And everything's so white enamel and aseptic that I swear I smell belladonna ichthal. Ointment every time I go into the place. Wait here until I change clothes. At the Long Island plant, no one is concerned about espionage. Neither the processes nor the equipment used. Uh, there was a secret, but the counter-espionage security was fantastically thorough. Every person or scrap of material entering the rector area was searched. The life history of every man and woman employed there was known back to the cradle. A broad highway encircled it outside a fence, patrolled night and day by 20 General Stuart cavalry tanks. There were a thousand soldiers and 300 atomic power authority police. And only God knew how many FBI and the Central Intelligence Undercover, uh, undercover Agents. Every uh, supervisor and inspector and salary technician was an armed United States Deputy Marshal, and nobody outside the Department of Defense knew how much radar and counter-rocket and fighter protection the place had. But the Air Defense Zone extended from Boston to Philadelphia, and as far as inland from Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania. Long Island Nuclear Power Plant, Melroy thought, had all the invulnerability of Achilles, and no more. The six new Dornberg-Gerardo breeder reactors clustered in a circle inside a windowless concrete building at the center of the plant. Beside their primary purpose of plutonium production, they furnished heat for the seawater distillation and chemical extraction system, processing the water that was run uh, through the steam boilers at the main power reactors, condensed, redistilled, finally pumped pure into the water mains in New York, safe outside the shielding in a corner of high clinged, oh, not clinged, ceilinged, wow, I am having a stroke, room, was the plyboid screened on the on the job office of the Melroy Engineering Corporation's timekeepers and foreman. Beyond the, along the far wall was the washroom and the locker room and the lunchroom of the workmen. 60 or 70 men, mostly in white coveralls and all wearing identification badges carrying uh, dosimeters in their breast pockets, and midget geigers strapped to their wrists were crowded about the bulletin board in front of the makeshift office. There was a hum of voices, some perplexed or uh, angry, but mostly good-humored and bantering. As Melroy and Doris Reeves approached, and the talking died out, and the men turned. In a sudden silence, one voice, harshly strident, continued, Eh, do they think this is anyhow? Eh, we don't have to take none of that. Somebody must have nudged the speaker, trying without success to hush him. 
The bellicose voice continued, and Melroy spotted the speaker short, thick-set, his arms jutting out an angle from his body, his heavy features uh, soured with anger. Like we was uh, a lot of half-wits, or nuts, or something. Well, we don't have to stand for this. They ain't got no right. Doris Reeves clung tighter to Melroy's arm as he pushed away for himself and her through the crowd and into the temporary office. Inside, they were met by a young man with a deputy marshal's badge on his flannel shirt and a thirty-eight revolver on his hip. Ben Purier, Dr. Reeves, Melroy introduced. Who's the mouthy character outside? Yeah, one of the roustabouts. Name's Burris, Purier replied. Washroom lawyer. Melroy nodded. You always get one or two like that. They get the rest talking. How is it? Perrier shrugged. How about you'd expect a, a lot of kidding about who's got any intelligence to test? Burris seems to be the only one who's trying to make an issue out of it. Oh, what are they doing ganged up here? Melroy wanted to know. It's past 0800. Why aren't they at work? Reactor's still too hot. Temperature and radioactivity are both too high. Radioactivity's uh, still up around 800 REMs. Well, then we'll give them all the written portion of the test together and start the personal interviews and oral tests as soon as they're through. He turned to Doris Reeves. Uh, can you give all of them the written test together? He asked. And can Ben help you distributing forms, timing the test, uh, seeing if there's no fudging? And they collected the forms and they're done. Oh, yes. All they have to do is follow the printed instructions, she looked around. On the desk, an extra chair for uh, the interview subject. Yeah, right over here, Doctor, Perrier said. And here are the forms and the cards and the sound recorder and blank sound discs. Yes, Melroy added. Be sure to get a recording of every interview and an oral test. We may need them for evidence. He broke off as a man in a white coveralls came pushing into the office. He's a scrawny little fellow with a wide, loose-lipped mouth and a protuberant Adam's apple. Besides his identity badge, he wore a two-inch celluloid button lettered IFAW Steward. You want to use the phone, he said. Union business. Melroy gestured toward a telephone on the desk beside him. The newcomer shook his head, twisting his mouth into a smirk. Not that one. The one on the, with the whisper mouthpiece, he said. This is a private union business. Melroy shrugged and indicated another phone. A man with the union steward's badge picked it up, dialed, and held a lengthy uh, conversation into it, turning his head away in case Melroy might happen to be a lip reader. Finally, he turned. Mr. Crandall wants to talk to you, he said, grinning triumphantly. The phone extended to Melroy. The engineer picked up another phone, snapping a button on the base of it. Uh, Melroy here, he said. Something on the line started going beep, beep, beep softly. Crandall, executive secretary, IFAW. The man on the other end of the line identified himself. Is there a recorder on this line? Naturally, Melroy replied. I record all business conversations. Office routine. Mr. Melroy, I've been informed that you propose forcing our members and your employee to submit to some kind of mental test. Is this correct? Eh, not exactly. 
and not able to force anyone to submit to anything against his will. If anybody objects to taking these tests, he can say so, and I'll have his time made out and pay him off. That's the same thing. A threat of dismissal is coercion. And if these men want to keep their jobs, they'll have to take the test. Eh, well, that's stated more or less correctly, Melroy conceded. Let's just eh, put it that taking and passing this test is a condition of employment. Eh, My contract with your union recognizes my right to establish standards of intelligence. That's implied by my recognized right to dismiss any person of unsound mind, deficient mentality, or emotional instability. Psychological testing is the only means of determining whether or not a person is classifiable in those terms. Then, in case of the test purports to show that one of these men is, eh, let's say, mentally deficient, you intend to dismiss them? Now, with the customary two-week severance pay, yes. Well, if you do dismiss anybody on those grounds, the union will have to insist on reviewing the grounds for dismissal. In my contract, your union says nothing whatever uh, about any right of review being reserved by the union in such cases, only in cases of disciplinary uh, dismissal, which is this is not. I take the position that certain minimum standards of intelligence and mental stability are essentials in this sort of work, just as, say, certain minimum standards or of literacy are essential in clerical work. Then you're not going to make these men take these tests, whatever they are, yeah, if they want to work for me, yes. And anybody who fails to pass them will be dropped from my payroll. Uh, and who's going to decide whether or not these men have successfully passed these tests, Crandall asked. You? Oh, good lord, no. I'm an electronics engineer, not a psychologist. The tests are being given and will be evaluated by a graduate psychologist, Dr. D. Warren Reeves, who has a, a diploma from the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and is a member of the American Psychological Association. Dr. Reeves will be the final arbiter on who is or is not disqualified by these tests. Well, our man Koffler says you have some girl there to give the tests, Crandall accused. I suppose he means Dr. Reeves, Melbourne replied. I can assure you she is an extremely competent psychologist. However, she came to me most highly recommended by Dr. Carl von Heinrich, who is not inclined to be careless with his recommendations. Well, Dr. Melroy, we don't want to have any more trouble with you than we have to have, Crandall told him. But we will insist on reviewing any dismissals which occur as a result of these tests. Yeah, you could do that. I'd advise, uh, first, that you read over the contract you signed with me. Uh, and get a qualified lawyer uh, to tell you what you agreed to, and then we'll, well, we have it. Uh, was there anything else you want to talk about? Uh, no? Then good morning, Mr. Crandall. He hung up. All right, let's get on with it, he said. Ben, you get them into the lunchroom. Uh, there are enough tables and benches there for everybody to take the written tests and two relays. Uh, the union's got to be represented while these tests are going on, the union steward announced. Mr. Crandall says I'm to stay here and watch what you do with these guys. This man working for us? That's per year. Yes, Koffler. Julius. Electrical fitter. Joe Ricci's gang. All right. See to it that he gets placed in the first relay for the written test. And gets first turn for the orals. And that way he can spend the rest of the time on duty here for the union. And we'll know in advance uh, what test is like. 
He turned to Koffler. But understand this. You keep your mouth out of it. If you see anything that looks objectionable, make a note of it. But don't try to interfere. The written tests? Done on printed forms. Required about, uh, mm, ah, 20 minutes. Melroy watched the process of oral testing and personal interviewing for a while, then picked up a big flashlight and dropped it into his overcoat pocket preparatory to go out and inspect some equipment that he had been assembled outside the reactor area and brought in. As he went out, Koffler was straddling a chair, glowering at Doris Reeves and making an occasional ostentatious notes on a pad. For about an hour, I poked around the newly assembled apparatus, checking the wiring and peering into it, and when he returned to the temporary office, the oral testing was still going on. Koffler was still on duty as watcher for the Union, but the sport had evidently palled on him, for he was now studying a comic book. Melroy left the reactor area and returned to the office in the converted area. During the mid-afternoon, somebody named Layden called him from the Atomic Power Authority Executive Office wanting to know what was the trouble between him and the IFAW and saying that a protest against his alleged high, uh, high-handed and arbitrary conduct had been received from the Union. Melroy explained at length, he finished, you people have 20 Stuart tanks and a couple of thousand soldiers and cops and undercover men here guarding against sabotage. Don't you realize that a workman who makes a stupid or careless or impulsive mistake is just as dangerous as the plan as any saboteur? If somebody shoots you through the head, it doesn't matter whether he planned to murder you uh, for a year or just didn't know the gun was loaded. You're as dead as one way or the other. I should think you should thank me for trying to eliminate a serious source of danger. Now, don't misunderstand my position, Mr. Melroy, the other man hastened to say. I I sympathize with your attitude entirely. But these people are going to make trouble. Oh, if they do, it'll be my trouble. I'm under contract to install this cybernetic system for you. You aren't responsible for my labor policy, Melroy replied. Or have you had much to do with this man Crandall yourself? Oh, have I had, Leighton sputtered for a moment. I'm in charge of personnel here, and it makes us top priority target all the time. Well, what sort of character is he, anyhow? When I contracted with the IFAW, my lawyer and their lawyer handled everything. I had never even met him. Well, he has his job to do, the same as I have, Leighton said. He does it uh, conscientiously, but it's like this. Anything a workman tells him is the truth. Anything an employer tells him is a dirty lie. Until proven differently, of course, but that takes a lot of doing. He goes off half-cocked all the time. He doesn't stop to analyze situations very closely. Yeah, that's what I was afraid of. Well, you tell him you don't have any control over my labor relations. Tell him to bring his gripes to me. Well, that turned out to be really long and laborious. Uh, We learned a lot about uh, dealing with unions and uh, how one man uh, thinks that people are dumb and have low IQs, which is uh, weirdly something that still is in play today. Uh, As you can hear, I've got the background noises going. Really just trying to milk that. 
as much as I possibly can, trying to make that still a theme that is failing horribly. And now we're hearing police sirens, so that's not fun. What did we learn from this episode? We learned that uh, a man who's potentially a jerk, uh, weirdly sexist towards the one doctor that comes in, uh, doesn't like people that he thinks are dumb for security reasons, and uh, that's pretty much it. So had to break this into two parts, and God, I hope the next part is uh, far more interesting than this turned out to be. Well, thanks for putting up with that. Thanks for putting up with my experiment of trying to have beautiful summertime sounds. Uh, And uh, I will see you next week.